Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris, and I am an alcoholic. I uh, really uh, appreciate getting an opportunity to, to come town. This is, a, this is a lovely area. And I, you know, I also appreciate all the work that goes into this. Uh, state conventions take an enormous amount of service work, and there are a lot of people behind the scenes uh, doing, some, uh, doing some great work, and I certainly appreciate that, too. Something like this is, is easy to do compared to um, the work that has to start years before these things even happen. Um, my topic this morning is steps one, two, and three. Uh, I'll, I'll start by saying uh, that alcoholism is a very unorthodox illness. It's misunderstood by a lot of people in AA. It's misunderstood by a lot of people we pay to treat us out there in, in the world uh, when, we're, when we're suffering from addictive illness or alcoholism. It's misunderstood by families, by court systems, by politicians. It is a very, very unorthodox illness. Um, and what makes it even more challenging is it's a very unorthodox recovery process. The recovery process that we, uh, we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous is not a standard recovery process for an illness. Uh, and because of those, those two things, it really makes it, a, it makes it a challenge to understand it, and it makes it a challenge to recover, uh, recover from it. Um, it's important to understand a problem. It's important to understand the problem to be able to apply a correct solution. One of the things that they ask when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous is to put aside, just lay aside our prejudices. You know, set aside what we think we know, because we can come into this, we can come into this recovery from alcoholism, we can come into this with belief systems that aren't going to work, belief systems that are wrong. Um, I, I, truly, I truly thought I knew what was wrong with me. I, I, uh, I, drank, uh, I drank from about um, 1970 uh, to, about uh, to about 1989. So that's a, that's a period of drinking where I knew in year one there was something abnormal about my drinking. The first time I ever got drunk, I went, I went into a blackout. And, and, and I drank like that you know, moving forward. There were periods of time when I could control and maybe enjoy my drinking, but those were, those were in the first handful of years. After that... After that, when I, when, I, when I put alcohol into my body, all bets were off. I had absolutely no clue what, what, what was going to happen. So I knew that uh, I had a different relationship with alcohol than most of the people that I was, I was hanging out with. But I, I didn't understand the problem. I didn't understand the problem until I was in Alcoholics Anonymous for quite some time. I truly thought my problem was I drank too much. I'll tell a story. I'll tell a story that will kind of explain what the real problem is with me. All right, I was I was a, a bad electrician like the last five years of my my drinking. It did did not go well. I wasn't really you know uh, doing uh, doing great electrical work. But uh, I had a job with uh, an alcoholic uh, electrical uh, comp, uh, boss and. Uh, he didn't mind if I was shattered every day. As long as, as, long as I could get some work done, he, he was fine. Now, what, what would happen is um, I would head home at 4.30 every day, and I would beeline for the liquor store. Uh, I mean, I, the liquor store is about two miles away from where I worked. 
I, I would drive there with a, with a vengeance. I'd, I'd get there and I would buy my Gordon's vodka if it was the summer months, my George Dickel bourbon if it was the winter months. And the person at the liquor store understood to keep those things stocked because we had an understanding. Okay, so um, this one day uh, I tear in there, uh, I head over, I grab my vodka and I go to, toward the cash register to pay for this vodka. And normally, you know, I got my 20, it's a, it's a quick interaction, boom, I'm out to the car. And as I'm walking out to the car, I don't even have to drink this stuff. As I'm, as I'm heading for the car, I go, I, I'm like... Ah, you know, that, that feeling like I, I, you know, I, I got it and I'm, I'm going to be drinking it in about five minutes when I get home. So, but this one time, this one time there, I, I, I find that there's, there's somebody in line in front of me. There's a lady in, in, in front of me in line. I got my five, I got my 20 and she's, she's like asking questions to the guy. She's like, do you know what kind of wine goes with tilapia, you know, and and he's, he's answering her. He's going, yeah, you know, there's this California Chablis. It's got quite a blush. And, you know, it's a good, good value for the money. And it goes well with the white fish. And I'm sitting there like, are you crazy? Get that lady, give that lady a bottle of Gallo and get her the hell out of the way. I, I got a problem here. I got a problem here. I'm sober. That's my problem. I'm sober. Get her out of here. Now, now, does, does that sound like a drinking problem? It's not. It's not. We admitted that we, 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 admitted that we were alcoholic uh, and could not manage our own lives, okay? There's a dash. There's a dash. Our lives had become unmanageable. That's one of the parts of step one where people, people get that wrong. Um, the part that I understood intuitively was once I took a drink, the first drink would always do one thing. The first drink would ask for the second. The second would insist on the third, and the third would demand the fourth. And the more alcohol in my body, the stronger the craving, and the more I wanted to put more alcohol in my body. That's why I would drink myself into unconsciousness every time I picked up. That's just... That's just that that's the phenomenon of craving. They call it an allergy in the doctor's opinion, but how it presents is as you ingest alcohol, it craves more alcohol. The more alcohol you put in, the more you crave more alcohol. That's part of step one. And I understood that. I understood that if I started drinking, I, you know, I should probably be in a safe place. You know, it shouldn't be just before traffic court or something. You, you know what I mean? I should probably be in a place where I can, I can get the job done without interference. The second part of step one is, is, uh, is harder to get. There's a line in the 12 of 12 that says, Who among us wishes to admit complete defeat? Glass in hand, we've warped our minds to such a state that only an act of divine providence can relieve us of this obsession. That's a, that's a strong sentence. It's in the first step in the 12 and 12. It's basically saying, who, wa who wants to admit defeat? Uh, this, this is basically what would happen to me my last five years of drinking or so. I would, 
at night, I would drink so much that I'd be sitting at my desk with a gigantic drink, and I would, I would pass out, and I'd land on the floor. Every night, I would come to about 2 in the morning, laying on the floor, and, you know, struggle up and go to bed. And it was a hardwood floor. I only, you know, alcoholics learn slow. I only realized, like, three or four years into, into sobriety that I should have bought a rug, you know what I mean? Like every night I'm slamming my head on a hardwood floor. You figure I could have got a throw rug or something, you know? But, uh, but that's what would happen. And, I, you know, I would stagger into bed and, and then I'd wake up in the morning just shattered and I'd walk in and, you know, I'd throw water in my face. I'd do my vomiting calisthenics. Uh, you know, I'd get ready to go, go and I'd go out to my $100 car and drive to work and, you know, just, just, shattered like like this you know because because it's not a hangover alcoholics end stage alcoholics you shouldn't call it a hangover you should call it what it is alcohol poisoning you've put enough alcohol in your body that your body is rejecting you you know it's it's like you have poisoned yourself if you drank a quart of vodka that's that's poison so uh so i'm poisoned and i'm going to work now I am so shattered and so ill that I am swearing to God that today is the day I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit. Today is the day. I don't want to ever feel like this again. This is it. I know I've said this before, but today is the day. Now, if you would have hooked me up to a lie detector and you would have said, Chris, are you quitting drinking for good and for all today? I would have said yes. And the polygraph guy would have said, you can put money on this guy. He is absolutely going to quit today. He means it with every fiber of his being. He's going to quit today. And I, me and I meant it. And that's the way I felt most, most part of the morning. But I'd get like half a sandwich down. I'd get rehydrated with a half a gallon of some kind of liquid. And I'd start to feel a little bit human. And as the end of work is, is, is approaching, I would start to think to myself, you know that decision you made this morning to never drink again? That's a pretty serious decision. You know, that's, I, that might even be an overreaction. And, uh, you know, we might need to modify, modify that decision a little bit, you know, make it more reasonable, you know, never ever drink again, ever. You know, we might even have to stop at the, at the liquor store on the way home today. And I would. I would stop at the liquor store on the way home today. Now, here's, here's where the insanity of alcoholism was with me. I thought I had changed my mind. I thought I had changed my mind to go to the liquor store. But that's insane. That would be insane because I was as sick as you could possibly be that morning. Why would I choose to go get sick again? It's the obsession of the mind. This is the tricky part. This, this, is, this is why uh, so many people misunderstand us. You know, we've just, gone, we've just gotten our third DUI. We've lost our family, our house, our job. And, and, and somebody sees us, you know, walking uh, you know, walk to our tent with a six-pack of... And they're like, after everything that you just experienced, what the hell are you doing drinking what's wrong with you has anybody ever said that to you what's wrong with you how do you answer that 
you know, it's, it's quite obvious you're completely insane because you're buying alcohol again after all you know about, about the tragic consequences in the past and, and about you, you, you've got to know at some level it's not good for you, it's a bad decision, but you're doing it anyway. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? So when somebody asks you, what's wrong with you? You got to go, what's wrong with you, man? You, you know, you got you to swing the light. Because it's just, it's just too, painful, too, too painful to look at. So, so for years, for years, I was swearing to God that today is the day. And, and, and not, before 6 o'clock at night, I was drinking. You know, that's, that's the obsession. That's the obsession of the mind. And it talks very, very clearly about this in the big book. It, t- it talks about the strange mental blank spots that will precede the first drink. Uh, uh, the subtle forms of insanity that allow us to put alcohol back in our body. You know, we're, we're in real trouble if, if, uh, if we're an alcoholic. You know, we're in real trouble. It's much more serious than, than we're going to give it credit for. You know, I, I staggered into Alcoholics Anonymous after 20 years of just destructive drinking, just kind of thinking, you know, I just got to get this drinking thing under control. But I was still the guy behind the lady asking about tilapia. I was still out of my mind. You know, you know the spiritual malady that they talk about was all over me. So I got two big problems. One of them is when I'm drinking. One of them is when I'm not drinking. Those are two problems. But to make it even worse, there's after the dash. My life has become unmanageable. Now, what does that look like? This is another area where, as alcoholics, a lot of times we will minimize. We will call things life on life's terms. Or, or, or you know, we will, we, will, we will misdirect away from the true symptoms and the true aspects of alcoholism. Okay, what does unmanageability look like? When I first walked in here, it was the crashed cars, you know, the, 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 the ex-wives who left me when I needed them the most, you know, the bad jobs, the, all that stuff. It was all, I saw my unmanageability as an exterior construct, as what was going on outside of me. That's what I thought my unmanageability was. And to a degree, it was. But if you quit drinking for a while, some of that stuff cleans up. The real unmanageability is the spiritual, the mental, and the emotional unmanageability. Because this is what, this is what takes us out, folks. And it, you know, it presents in many, many ways. But what it really is, is it's sobriety becomes untenable. It becomes unbearable to be sober one more day. One more day. That's that's what the unmanageability will do to you. What does it look like? Uh, Throughout the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, they point in the direction of unmanageability. There's no chapter on unmanageability, but there's a lot of of references to it. One of the first ones is uh, we're restless, irritable, and discontented. Anybody in here ever been restless, irritable, and discontented? You know? How about today? <laughs> you, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a couple of honest hands, and uh, and 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 uh, 
uh, I can totally understand that. Um, that's a good day sober. Without, I'm talking about without a recovery process. A good day is being restless, irritable, and discontented if you're an alcoholic. But what happens, a normal day is you're prey to misery, depression, self-centered fear, guilt, shame, remorse, anxiety, uh, just an, an inability to deal. Lack of dealage is part of, uh, part of the unmanageability. And on a really bad day, it's the hideous four horsemen, terror, frustration, bewilderment, despair. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. That's what the unmanageability can do. And that's the kind of stuff that takes us out. Why does it take, it out, take us out? Because in the back of our mind, we know halfway through a bottle is eight minutes of peace. And then we become vomiting pigs. But we know that there's that eight minutes of escape and our mind starts to tell us this and starts to obsess on it. And, and, and we get to a point, sometimes we get, get to a point where we tell ourselves a lie, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're not even there when we're going to the liquor store. Sometimes we're not even there. Let, 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 me, let me tell you one experience that I have uh, where I got a real lesson. Um, I got a real lesson on uh, the obsession of the mind. I signed myself into a treatment center in early 1989, and this was unusual. I mean, I signed myself in. It wasn't because of cops or bosses or anything. I, alcohol had got my attention to the point where I'm, go, I'm going to Happy Hills, okay? And I signed myself in, and I do 28 days, and I, I participate to the best of my insane ability. Um, and then they let me out, and they, they recommend outpatient, and they recommend AA meetings, which I, I did both. Uh, I, I went to two AA meetings a week, two outpatient a week. What more do you people want? You know, and, uh, and I, would, I would come late. I'd leave early at the AA meetings, and uh, um, I'd resent the outpatient because it would be group. Anybody in here ever go to group? You know, where they, everybody sits around a big circle and starts talking about their stuff. Uh, they're talking about their issues, and uh, you know I had to listen to one meathead after the other talk about their issues in, in group, and uh, that that caused a big resentment. Uh, I, you know, treating alcoholism with group is like is like trying to stop a semi with a cobweb. But you know what I mean? It's unbelievable. It's uh, and, and it costs money, but um, I don't judge. Uh, anyway. Um, what happened was, listen, I am committed, and, and if there was a I don't want to drink meter in those AA meetings that I was going to, you know, my, the, the needle would have been the highest with me. I did not want to drink anymore. I, I, you know, I knew it was going to kill me. I was doing crazy, insane things when I was drinking. I was pulling guns on people in blackouts. I mean, you know, but for the grace of God, I'm not in, I'm not in prison from doing something completely insane when I was in a blackout, just by the grace of God. But, uh, but I really did not want to drink. I told everybody I know, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm going to AA. I'm going to outpatient. I, you know, I'm, I'm paying my dues. I've made a serious commitment to this sobriety thing. And one day as I'm heading to an AA meeting, the thought crosses my mind that if I stop at the liquor store and buy a gallon of vodka and drink it, it will help me do this AA stuff better. <laughs> it will recommit me to this way of life that I have chosen. I will remember once more why I am doing all this. This is what my, brain, my mind tells me. So listen, that sounds like a good idea. 
you're an alcoholic, you know what I'm talking about. Sounds, sounds, that's a, that's a workable plan. So I stop at the liquor store, I start uh, drinking a gallon of vodka, and this is what happened. Drink one. This is a good idea. This is a good idea. This is going to respark, you know, my whole recovery commitment. Second drink. This is a good idea. This is a good idea. All of a sudden, halfway through the third drink, it dawned on me that I'd opened up the cage door to the beast and I was a dead man. And I went, oh my God, I'm drinking. Oh no. Now, now talking about insanity, when was I insane? I was insane before I got drunk. The alcohol restored me to sanity. So the insanity of alcoholism precedes the first drink, okay? Never took the first drink drunk. I never took the first drink drunk, but I always took that first drink. Now what happened was that, that led me into the most pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization I'd ever experienced. It was about six more months until I finally sobered up in December of 89. It was terrible. It was decadent. It was pathetic. I was ill all the time. It was, it was just as bleak as life could be. And I finally, uh, I finally uh, sobered up and, and what I did was I went back to AA and uh, I, tell me, guys, tell me what, tell me what to do. Somebody said, do a, do a 90 and 90, I did a 90 and 90. Somebody said, get a sponsor, I got a sponsor. Somebody said, get a home group, I got a home group. There was, there was no more resistance. There was no more, I, you know, I don't, uh, don't want to follow your direction because you're stupid. There was, there was no more of that. <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was totally willing to, uh, to follow direction. Now, in early recovery, just because I'm not drinking does not mean I have treated my alcoholism. Uh, going to meetings and not drinking is not a treatment for alcoholism. Please understand that. It's a good idea to do, but it's not a treatment for alcoholism. Here I am, here I am I'm, I'm sober uh, as can be for my first six months in AA, and uh, I am just, I, I'm just a, I, I described myself like I had the tension of a garage door spring, you know what I mean? Like hundreds of pounds of like repressed insanity, just, you know, waiting to snap off the door. And, and that's really the way I was. But I, but I cleaned up good, and, and people were patting me on the head saying, hey, Chris, you're, you're doing a great job. You're going, you're going to meetings. You're doing a great job. But inside, I was insane. I was insane. I'd be sitting there in, in a discussion meeting, and, and I'd be sitting there with a big smile on my face, like I'm an AA member. This is my home group. And I'd look around, and, and, and I'd look over, and I'd go, oh, 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 no, no. Oh, no, he's, he's raising his hand. Oh, my God, please don't call on that guy. I get, don't call on him, please. Oh, my God, they called on him. Oh, no, now i got to hear him. Share about his family. Oh, oh, Lord, please. You know, oh. Oh, 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 now, oh, now he's grateful. Now he's grateful. You know, I think what I'll do is I'll go out to the parking lot, I'll slash all four of his tires, and I'll walk out there with him after the meeting so I can see gratitude in action, you know? And, and this is what's going on in my head. And I'm sitting there, thanks for sharing. You know, how you doing, Chris? Great. How you doing? Fine, you know? Meanwhile, I'm completely insane. Now, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine comes up to me and says, uh, and says here's, a, here's a bunch of tapes. I think you'll like this. You're kind of hardcore. Here, here's, here's a bunch of tapes. Uh, check them out. And they were, uh, they were eight 90-minute cassette tapes. <clears throat> and they were, uh, they were a big book, wor big book workshop from uh, the late, great Joe and Charlie. 
And I started listening to those, and you, you got to understand, that was a new language to me. In, in New Jersey, in New Jersey, at that time, there was nobody working out of the big book. There was a lot of 12 and 12 meetings, but there, there was really nobody working out of the big book. So when I heard a big book study, it was, it was different. It, you know, it, it, almost like a, a different language. And I remember listening to it because I promised the guy I would. And there was a lot of stuff in there that would perk me up, but, but I disagreed with these guys. I'm thinking, you know, maybe that's how you do it in Arkansas, but in New Jersey, we share. You, you, you know what I mean? We go to a meeting and we share. And, uh, and what happened was I put those tapes to the shelf. A couple of things happened. Um, uh, one of them was Florida came after me. <laughs> I've got, I, had some, uh, I had some problems that I'd never cleaned up in Florida. Um, uh, uh, a girlfriend broke up with me, uh, motor vehicle problems, job problems, money problems, all hit me at once. <clears throat> and there's another line in the big book that basically says, you know, uh, that uh, you, could, you could get into some trouble that you're not going to be able to get out of if you don't have some kind of spiritual fortification. Uh, you, you, need to be, you need to be spiritually fit to get through some of these things. And I, and I was not. I was, I was sober fit, but I wasn't really spiritually fit. And I remember, <clears throat> I remember going over to my sponsor's house, and, uh, and he pointed me at prayer. I picked these tapes back up, and I started to listen to them. And I started to, number one, learn about alcoholism, and number two, even more importantly, learn about what the recovery from alcoholism is. You know, step two, <clears throat> step two is a tough one. I think a lot of alcoholics trip up on this. And it's because when we hear the word God, we equate that with, with religion and we, we equate it with belief systems that we've had that have not worked for us. A lot of times these religious or spiritual belief systems are things we built ourselves in our heads. Well, remember, we're insane. So that, that stuff may not be applicable, it may not work. One of the exercises that they ask you to do in the big book is to lay aside those belief systems, lay aside that prejudice so that you can be open to a new experience, to new understanding. And this is, I think, a lot of times where it trips up uh, alcoholics. There's two guys that I've sponsored, a re really, really cool, you know, um, uh, Miguel comes up to me before the meeting. I haven't seen him in 15 years. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's one of the guys I sponsored way back on. But, I, you know, I've sponsored people over the years, uh, and there's two of them that I'm never going to give up on, but they never stay sober. And both, both, of the, both of these guys come in, they, they're good AA members for a while, you know, they'll make the coffee, they'll even sponsor, they'll even do big book work, they'll do all this stuff. But at core, at core, they do not believe that there's a power that they can access that will relieve them uh, of the obsession to drink and help them to put their lives back together. They don't believe that power exists. And that's the only thing that I can think of that blocks these guys. Because it's not willingness. It's not participation. They do all that. But there are, but there are times, there are times when, uh, when they can't take it and, uh, and, they, and they, they pick up a drink. And I love both of these guys. Uh, but they can't get past step two. <clears throat> Here's how I look at it. I have a lot of commitments at treatment centers. I, have a, I work with a lot of new people. And 
How I try to describe it is there's a lot of language in the big book that talks about the experience of God. Experience is the most vital things, folks, that, that we'll ever have. Experience trumps opinion any day. You know, always listen. If you're new, always listen for somebody's experience. Be very, very wary of somebody's uh, opinion. But it talks about the father of light, the great reality. There's a, a number of different descriptives in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started really looking at those one day. And I started to understand that Bill was talking really about a power. They identified this power with God. But it was a power, a power greater than themselves that could do for them what they could not do for themselves on their own unaided will. Now, I've experienced this power. I, I believe Alcoholics Anonymous is unapologetically about gaining access to the actual power of God that, that will work in you and through you and help you recreate your life and do amazing, remarkable things. I, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't share that enough. But that's, that's what this whole process is about. It's, it's about making us ready through the steps to gain access to a power that will work in us and through us. And it's amazing. Uh, most of us have experienced this. If you've done the steps, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, things, things start to clear up. Things, things start to change. And you couldn't have made that change yourself if you read 3,000 Anthony Robbins books. Or, you know, or, or you, you, we can't do that. Um, it happens to us. It's an experience that we have when we go through the steps. And again, I had the problem wrong. I, first time my sponsor ever came over to my house, it's, you know, I'm sober like six months, and he just, he's going to drop by, and I invite him up upstairs into my room, and, and he's looking at my bookcase, uh, and he's reading all the books, and he goes, man, Chris, you've, you've got a lot of self-help books here. You know, I'm, I'm kind of proud, like, yeah, self-help. And he goes, uh, where are your help others books? I'm like, I'm like, what, what do you mean, Phil? What do you mean? He goes, he goes, Alcoholics Anonymous is not about helping you. It's about learning how to help others. And through that experience, you will be helped. That's the difference between the big book and self-help books. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it helps us to gain access to this power by, by moving us into spiritual lines, spiritual principles. You know, how did, how did Bill and Bob, uh, I, you know, I love these pictures over here. I'm, I'm, I'm also really happy to see Sandy there. That is so cool. But these haircuts are coming back, by, by, by the way. Uh, I've seen some people going into the, to the dance hall with some, with some of those. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, you know, Al Alcoholics Anonymous came up with the solution because they were exposed to... Um, to a religious tradition that had massive amounts of participation in spiritual principles. The Oxford group. The Oxford group was this group where on Mondays you'd, ha you'd go to somebody's house and you'd, fi and you'd figure out you know, who to go and, and work with. On Tuesday you'd be trying to find people to witness to. On, on Wednesday you'd be back at the house. On I mean, every night they had you busy. 
they had weekend house parties, which were like our conventions, basically, where everybody would, would stay at somebody's house and, and you know, uh, uh, con- do confession, do, uh, work on restitution, uh, uh, do all these prayers and meditations. And, and that's what the Oxford group looked like. And that's why Bill got sober. And when Dr. Bob jumped in with both feet, he got sober too. It was because of the spiritual activity, the spiritual practices. And, uh, and Bill Wilson recognized this. And instead of keeping it in like an Episcopal faith or a Christian tradition, he understood that if you, if you practice these principles, if you apply these spiritual exercises in your life, you're going you're gonna to get and stay sober. You're, you know, you're going to start to actually feel the power of God in your life to help you move forward. And you know, that's, really, that's really where we came from. So, so the chapter, We Agnostics, uh, the chapter We Agnostics is basically kind of to soften us up a little bit and, and help us to, to under, understand that we, we should not allow our belief systems or our prejudice uh, keep us from applying these, these, spiritual, these spiritual principles uh, in, in our lives. That's certainly what's brought about uh, recovery from, um, from alcoholism for, for me. Now, now, what was read earlier, <clears throat> our drunkenness and our disillusion is not penalties inflicted by people in authority in AA. They come because of our disobedience to spiritual principles. If we, if we disobey these spiritual principles, there, there's a little bit of latitude. You know, none of us are perfect. No one among us has ever has been able to uh, uh, do any of this stuff perfectly. However, if we continue to diso- disobey these spiritual principles, we're quite sure to drink. That's why, that's why we drink. It's not because it's not she left or, or she stayed or... Or you got you got lost a job, or you got a bad one, or, or you know all the lies that we tell ourselves. We relapse because of our disobedience to to spiritual principles that we learn uh, we learn as we go go through the steps. So step two is is a very very step one is a, is a bad step. Okay, you can't walk out of step one feeling good. If if you do, you you did it wrong, because step one is it's Custer's last stand, and there's more Indians coming. That, that's, what st- that's what step one is. Step one is I have a brain that's not going to let me stop drinking. I've got a body that will ensure I drink myself to death. And everything sucks. That's what step one is. <laughs> everything sucks. <clears throat> so step two is come to believe that there's a power that we can access that will enable us to regain sanity what kind of sanity? Well, the main sanity of picking up the next drink or, or, or the next drug. That's the, that's the sanity that we get, uh, we get restored to. Uh, and a lot of other things happen uh, uh, as, we, uh, as we move forward, uh, forward from that. So we understand the problem. We understand the problem. Step one is our problem statement. Step two is our solution statement. What's the solution? The solution is a power greater than ourselves. And step three is a decision to implement that solution. Step, th- step three is saying, all right, I'm in. I'm in. What do I need to do? 
Step three is an affirmation that we're going we're gonna to practice these, these principles, that we're going to go through the steps, that we're going we're gonna to make ourselves ready as one of God's instruments. You know, all of these prayers, these prayers are not about, uh, you know, making everything great for us so we can, you know, make more money and be happier. All these prayers are about uh, making us uh, fit tools for God's use, you know, making ourselves uh, ready to be of maximum service to our fellow man, God and our fellow man. And that's, that's really the, the journey. In step three, <clears throat> in step three, there's a body of work that's very, very uh, important to go through. Uh, could I see the big book? There's a, there's a body of work that's very important to go through. If you get, if you get th step three and you really, really do step three, um, your life is not going to be any of your business anymore. Your life is not going to be any of your business anymore. It's going to be God's business. And that sounds scary prior to doing it. I got to tell you, I started to live. I started to live the day, uh, the day I went through these steps and placed myself as a very, very defective vessel in front of God to, to use. Now, as we move into step three, it says the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Now, this is a monster statement. Any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. That goes against everything that we've learned. That goes against everything we've learned in school. That goes against all the John Wayne movies we've ever seen. It goes against all the self-help books we've ever read. It, it, makes, it makes absolutely no sense that, we, that we, can't, we can't direct our own lives. God gave us self-will, you know, but the problem is, is if you're an alcoholic, you, you're not just self-will, your self-will run riot. You, you, you can't handle the power of self-will. And, and, and you, you'll, you'll steer the ship into the ditch every single time. So... So we have to be convinced that if we decide what we're going to do moving forward, our life is going to be a failure. That's a really tough one to do. That's a tough one to do. The only thing we can do is look back on our experience. Look back on your experience. How many times did you shoot yourself in the foot? How many times did you do things that, were, that just mortified you and you, you, were, you regretted, you regret to this day? How, how many major mistakes have you made? How many times have you been arrested? How many times have you let your family down? Let everyone that, loves you, that, that, that you love down? How many times? So we need to look back at our experience as untreated alcoholics and we have to understand that our lives run on self-will are not going to be successful. We must place our lives in the hands of a much better manager than us. And we do that, we do that uh, on the spiritual plane. I like to turn, I like to make this personal when I go through this. this by the way, this is on page 60. From page 60 to 63 is, uh, is a beautiful synopsis of the untreated alcoholic and why we need to go through the steps. It's, and I like, to, I like to make this personal. Um, on that basis, Chris 
is almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though his motives are uh, good. Most, uh, most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show and is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players uh, in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if, if people would only do as he wished, the show would be great. And when I first read this, it sounded like some, some nut job actor in a bad play. But like a lot of the material in this book, when I really start to look at it honestly, it paints a picture of me. Here, here I am. Uh, I've got directions for everybody. Okay, my ex-wife tr trying to tell her what to do. My, you know, my daughter she needs to know what to do. My boss is an idiot. Uh, he should he should run the business this way. Uh, you know, there's there's every the neighbors. You know, they're not, I had problems with everybody. Everybody was misbehaving, and here I am. I've got a hundred dollar car. I'm living at home with mom. I'm 33 years old. You know, I'm sick as a dog. I got $4 in my pocket. And, and you know, and I'm going to be telling you how to live? I mean, it's insane. I remember this one time I was coming home from a, coming home from a party in my $100 car. And, you know, we, we'd, 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 been, uh, we'd been up all night using non-conference approved stuff that helps you drink longer. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm driving like with one eye through the middle of town. It's Sunday morning about 7.30, right? And I'm, and I'm, this car is bad. It's all the quarter panels are gone. It's got no muffler. Yeah, it's like going down the road. It's just this terrible, terrible, like hundred dollar crap a Quaalude car. And and I'm I'm driving right I'm driving right down the middle middle of town. And and there's these families and the families like dressed up and they're little kids in the sailor suit, you know. And I'd roll down the window and I'd go, losers, losers, you're you're trapped in suburbia, you know. And and. You know, I let my hair is stick sticking up. I I really thought I really thought that my way of living was the right. I mean, that's how insane I was. Uh, you know, so so this body of work this this is an important body of work uh, to go through. You know, the show will not the show doesn't come off very well when I'm trying to direct it. Um, our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. Uh, there's selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Folks, that, that's really what alcoholism is. Alcoholism is a tragic, tragic sense of self-centeredness. You know, alcohol is a symptom. A lot of things are symptoms. Our resentments, our fears... You know, our behavior, a lot of that is symptoms of alcoholism. But what really is it, is it, is it key here is our sense of separation, our sense of believing that we are unto ourselves. It's, it, it's a characteristic all alcoholics have. You know, you hear things in meanings like, I may not think much of myself, but I'm all I think about. I, you know, things like that are very, very true with the, with the alcoholic. Um, I think this has been attributed to Einstein. I have no idea whether, uh, whether that's the, the correct place to place this quote. But I heard that he said the great, the great deception of mankind, the great mistake of mankind, is that so many of them believe there's more than one of them here. 
You, you know what I mean? Like, like, like believing that you are separate and, you know, it's a hostile universe and you need to scramble and scrape and you need to defend. So much of my life was defending stuff that didn't even deserve to be defended, like, like my, opinion, my bad opinions. You know, I would defend everything. And all of that, all of that is manifestations of, of selfishness and self-centeredness. <clears throat> If you do a study of uh, really enlightened people like the Dalai Lama, there's a, there's a number of people that wander the planet who are, who are truly enlightened and, and, and awakened, awakened people. You'll notice that they, they are very compassionate. They, they, have, uh, uh, you know, they have a lot of empathy for their fellow man's, mankind's suffering. You know, they, they are, they're not self-centered. They're more God-centered. I think, I think what the steps do is they pry us out of this toxic self-obsession, self-awareness, self-seeking, uh, self-centeredness. They, they start to pry us out of it. Why, why do you think your sponsor wants you to get involved in service work right away? You, you know, um, clean up the coffee cups or clean the ashtrays or be a greeter or what, you know, whatever, be, be, the, be the cookie boy, you know, what, whatever uh, they ask you to do. Why do you think that? My, my first sponsor <clears throat> started to get me into service and it was hard. I remember he asked me one time to help cook at a treatment center camp out. And I'm behind a grill and I'm cooking, I'm cooking uh, crab legs and stuff and the smoke is blowing in my eyes and I smell like a burnt crustacean. I'm sitting there hot and they're playing volleyball over there and they're swimming over there and I'm stuck behind the grill. I'm like, Phil, can I go now? You, you, you know? And he's like, no, you, you have a commitment. You, need, you, need to, you, you got the grill commitment. And it was so hard for me because they were having fun over there. You know, I, that's not how I lived. I went, after, I went after the things that I wanted irregardless of, of, of any consequences. I was quite capable of ruining all of tomorrow for 10 minutes of fun today. You know, that's the way I lived. That's the way I lived. And so he got me involved in service and he started to pull me away from this, this chronic self-centeredness. But, but what really, really treats this abnormal sense of self is a run through the steps. It's, it's a run through the steps. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping outside of my, uh, my lane a little bit, but, but I will tell you, if, uh, if you have not done a fourth step, resentment inventory, fear inventory, uh, conduct inventory, if you've not done that, you don't really know what your problem is. You've probably got the problem wrong, like like I had it wrong. Uh, when, when I start to look at when I start to look at some of the symptoms of my alcoholism, I start to see that they can all directly be related back to back to self. <clears throat> so our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. So this is, again, this is a problem. If we don't think we're self-will run riot, we may not do the rest of this work because we won't see that it's actually a solution to our problem. The alcoholic is almost always going to say, yeah, I love those steps up on the wall, but they're not going to apply to me. My case is different. 
I understand what all you guys are talking about, but there's something really wrong with me, and the steps are not going to be able to fix me. You know, something really wrong with me. I'm different than you. You know, that's a manifestation of, of selfishness, of self-centeredness, having to be apart from. <clears throat> Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there's, there often seems to be no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither um, could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. And how do we get God's help? We get God's help by rightly relating ourselves to God. And there's a beautiful program of action uh, that's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous for doing that. Um, the steps are, uh, uh, are pretty simple. They're, they've been developed for, for somebody to apply who is, was drunk yesterday. I mean, they're not, they're not that difficult to understand. They're very, very tough to do. They're very, very tough because instincts balk at investigation. There's going to be pieces of our ego and pieces of ourself that are going to try to keep us away from this solution. You know, and that's where sponsorship and home group and all that, we need as much uh, encouragement and, and forward momentum from the people in Alcoholics Anonymous as we're going to get because, you know, it's just very, very difficult to, to move into this stuff. It's the death of ego and self. And, and our ego and our self recognize it going in. So we don't really want to do it. You know, we don't want to be the hole in the donut, uh, as it says in... Uh, in the step book, but, but if we really are alcoholic, if we're a real alcoholic of the description in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, we may not have any other way out of this. We, we, may, not, we may not survive alcoholism. There's not enough meetings, there's not enough coffee if you're, uh, if you're a chronic late stage alcoholic to keep, keep you sober. Uh, you must have a transformational experience, something that just, just blows the shoes off your feet. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's, what the, that's what the steps will do. Um, in the third step, a lot of times we hear, we hear the third step prayer, uh, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me, uh, do with me as thou will. Uh, that's an affirmation prayer, okay? We're affirming the decision, but we, the prayer is not the third step. Uh, the, pr the prayer is, is saying, I understand the third step and I, I, I agree with it. And the third step really is this, this body of work preceding the third step prayer. We need to be in alignment with, uh, with the fact that we are, uh, we're alcoholic. We cannot manage our own lives. There is a power greater than ourselves that can, that can restore us to sanity. We must rightly relate ourselves to that power if we're going to have any chance of a decent life and, and getting away from, uh, from alcoholism. And, and uh, we, need to, we need to do that. You know... Um, my life is uh, <clears throat> my life is becoming in incredibly full uh, because I was desperate enough to apply uh, so some of these some of these principles. Um, I was desperate enough to to go through these steps, and I look back and I see the grace of God on all of it. Um, I, I I don't know that I had the personal power to move through the steps without God's help. Uh, I, I, see the, I see the grace of God all over, 
uh, all over my life. And, and again, I think the grace of God falls on all, us, all of us equally. You know, so, some, of us, um, some of us are ready um, for the change. Uh, some of us are ready to, to uh, set aside what we think we know about, uh, about our problems and, and apply a different solution. Some of us are ready for that and some, some of us aren't. I think that's, uh, I think that's the difference. Um, there's another line in the 12 of 12 that says, God will not render us white as snow without our cooperation. So the question is, again, how then shall I cooperate? I need to cooperate by being compliant. I need to obey these spiritual principles. I need to be compliant with these, with these spiritual principles um, if, uh, if, if, I wanna, if I wanna move forward. So <clears throat> everyone I've ever worked with who was clear on the first step, I mean, got it. Got, wasn't just paying lip service to it, got it, made it through the steps. Um, there's no resist. I, I'll say it like this. <clears throat> if there's an amend you're unwilling to make, okay, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not going to, I know I need to pay that money back. I'm, I'm just, I'm just not going to. Well, the reason you're not going to pay the money back is, uh, is because you haven't, uh, you haven't uh, done a list and become willing to make amends. And the reason you haven't become willing to make amends is you didn't humbly ask God to remove all of your shortcomings and you didn't ask God to remove all of your shortcomings because you didn't become willing to ask God to remove all your shortcomings. And you didn't come, become willing is because you didn't honestly share your uh, resentment, fear, and conduct inventory uh, with another person and God. And, and you didn't do that because you didn't probably write it, you know, you weren't complete with, uh, with your four-step inventory, and you weren't complete with your four-step inventory because you didn't make a commitment to seek uh, life along spiritual lines and rightly relate yourself to God in step three, and you didn't do that because you didn't truly believe there was a power greater than yourself that could, that could restore you to sanity, and the only reason you wouldn't believe that is because you don't believe you're an alcoholic. You know, so, so you really get step one, you're going to be moving through the rest of the steps with a vengeance. You, you are, because it's, you know, think of it, think of it this way. If you had stage four pancreatic cancer and, you know, you go to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, I, I'm not even sure we should try to start treatment. You know, you know it, it might just cause you more pain than, than you're going to have anyway. Well, doc, doc, isn't there anything? Isn't there anything? Well, well, yeah. There's this, there's this uh, clinic out in Akron, Ohio, that that uh, has a 12-step process, and you know, you know, they're they're, they're they've got like 80, 90 percent uh, survival rate. You know, well, how do I get to that clinic? I mean, you'd sell your house, you'd sell your family, you know, you'd you'd quit your job, you'd, whatever you needed to do, you'd go to Akron, and you would you would get engaged in that 12-step recovery process, absolutely, because you know it's your only hope of survival. The insanity of alcoholism is it's not that clear to us. It's not that clear. Make the amends. Put whiskey in my body. Write the inventory. Put whiskey in my body. We don't make it that clear because there's inherent in alcoholism is an almost utter inability to do an accurate self-appraisal. It's just the way it is for all of us. Sometimes we just we stumble into this stuff and, uh, and the grace of God uh, is, is really what makes it possible to move through this work. Um, and, and again, <clears throat> it's 
steps one, two, and three are, are absolutely crucial. I'm really, really, uh, really, really happy I, I, was, I got the chance to, uh, to come, up, come up here and do this. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be with some friends, some old friends have come up here. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a while since I've been in this area. I actually, uh, I actually went to, to college at uh, USF down in Tampa. And uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I did, and uh, I'll tell some of those. I'll tell some of those stories uh, on Friday night. Oh man, uh, there was just there was just too much opportunity in, in this state. Uh, I I was not able to handle it. Uh, but anyway, um, um, thanks thanks a lot for letting me share this morning. Thank you.